Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thank you very much for coming, Peter. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, I appreciate it's a nice crowd today, and I think that reflects the fact that we clearly have a very important topic in front of us today. We have an extraordinary panel with diverse backgrounds, and I think as you learn more about them, you'll be pleased to see the knowledge of detail that they have, which should give us a chance to have a discussion with a lot more meaning that might, that might be available on Limbaugh, Olbermann, or Beck. Uh, I also can't help but noting, however, that I'm a little concerned that today's topic highlighted Humpty Dumpty as a metaphor. Uh, we talked here is the California budget crisis, what does the California budget crisis mean for public programs and priorities? Can Humpty Dumpty be put back together again? Or is the Golden State broken beyond repair? Do we need a constitutional convention to cha- change the way we do business? Well, going back to, again, the Humphrey, uh, the the Humpty Dumpty metaphor didn't turn out very well. That's a a concern. Now, will our current situation be different? Uh, My brief introductory remarks of our three distinguished panelists, Senator Carol Liu, Professor John Elwood, and Dean Henry Brady, will highlight and give us confidence of the fact of how deep, how much deep uh, knowledge they have about these situations. I want to take the very brief liberty of emphasizing that I think this is, in fact, a horrific crisis. Uh, I say this despite the fact that throughout my life I've been characterized as a pathological optimist. Well, given that fact, when the, pa- when the pathological optimists get really scared, perhaps we're a little bit like canaries in the coal mine, and there's reason to be concerned. Uh, The question I would pose is, do we have the political will or a sense of community that can lead us to solutions without the radical notion of a a constitutional convention being undertaken? We all know that California has had many crises in the past, and we have always seemed to come out of them, but not always. It pains me to think about the fact that when I left uh, Berkeley in the late 60s and moved to New York for 35 years, we were ranked number one in public education, and I believe we are now 49th. How did we allow that to happen? Uh, Many highlight the inequities of Proposition 13, and yet many people feel that that is totally untouchable. You know, I think we're all aware of homes that can be literally next door to other that are very similar in, in, in value, and yet one house pays $40,000 a year in property tax, and the house next door spends $2,000 in property taxes. I'm also aware of businesses in Berkeley that literally reside on a full city block that pay, pay lower property tax than some of the people in this room's homes would pay property tax. So is, I would just say, is this rational? So now I'd like to turn it over to our panelists to ask if, in fact, this is the case and how we're going to move through this. I'm going to introduce, I'm going to give a brief bio on our three panelists in the order in which uh, they are going to speak. Uh, First is, to my immediate left, uh, John Elwood, a professor of public policy. Uh, His areas of expertise and interest simply could not be more relevant to our subjects today. Financial management and public sector budgeting. And he has also worked on the management of analysis by staffs, and staffs are so critical on these issues within a political environment. He has worked on the management staff for the Congressional Budget Office, and he knows the nuances and details with experiences ranging from teaching business and government management at Dartmouth, and also as research director of the Public Policy Institute of California for a number of years. So 
uh, I think he's going to speak a bit about where are we today, kind of defining the problems and some of the challenges we face getting out of it. Uh, The next speaker will be uh, Henry Brady, uh, who is a professor of public policy and co-director of the aforementioned class of 68 Center on Civility, and perhaps most importantly is the dean of the Goldman School, having assumed his responsibilities in July of this year. So Henry, welcome and thank you for uh, taking on such a tough challenge. I think I would say when you look at uh, Henry's experiences as a political scientist and economist, He really specializes in the facts. He works on quantitative uh, methodology, databases, research on the dynamics of public participation and and political campaigns. So once again, I think he can get us under the rug a little bit on some of the nuances and and the challenges that we face. Our final speaker is Senator Carol Liu. And she's going to have the tough question of saying, okay, here's the problem. Where do we go from here? And do we have reasons for being optimistic? I'm really excited to hear from Carol today because she has a fascinating background. First of all, she's a fifth-generation Californian on her mother's side. And I don't think there's a lot of fifth-generation Californians out there. Her father emigrated from China before World War II, where she was then raised in Berkeley. So again, between her two parents, she reflects two of the major trends of California going way back and new uh, immigrants to the state as well. Uh, She was raised in Berkeley, had a public school education, went to San Jose State, and happily graduate work at Berkeley. And in looking at her her biographical information, I was reminded of of something that I heard articulated by President President Eisenhower, which certainly dates me a bit to be uh, quoting that president. But I remember he mused about he was very concerned that we were evolving in the United States towards a professional class of politicians. You find a lot of people, you look at their resume, that's all they had done in their life as being a politician. Of course, he was a military general, he'd been president at Columbia, but he felt that in the past when people came from different streams of public life and then went into politics, you had a more diverse legislature. Well, in any case, President Eisenhower would be very proud of you, Carol, because uh, after getting graduate degrees at Berkeley, she taught in Richmond for 15 years at different levels. She then worked as a school administrator for seven more years before she and her husband moved to Southern California, where she became very involved in everything, such as being head of the PTA, very involved in civic activities, before serving in both the assembly and then the legislature. Uh, she's had a distinguished career in the legislature, uh, among them, uh, and at one time she was named by different organizations as the Outstanding Legislator of the Year, something to be very proud of. So anyway, we will have comments from each speaker in the range of 10 to 12 minutes, which will give us a great deal of time for questions, so please be prepared with those. I think after the opening remarks, I'm going to ask each speaker to see if they had any immediate response to what was being said by the others. And then we'll open the floor for questions, and I hope we'll have a a lot of good give and take. So thank you very much, and I'd like to turn it over immediately to John. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Welcome. Okay. We'll start here. Um, One of the things you should be proud about, about uh, the Goldman School, is... uh, Number one, it's ranked either first or second in the country. Uh, but secondly, it brings together it brings together a whole series of uh, professionals uh, to look at uh, 
different aspects of problems. And so Henry himself over here has a, a joint PhD in economics and political science. And I have to mention, since we're dealing with budgeting, his first job was his budget examiner. The Bureau of the Budget, was that what it was called then? Oh, it was OMB, new OMB. So he's a budgeteer at heart, too. Uh, and that's why he smiles all the time. Uh, and the th- when you look at a crisis like this, as I tell my students, the great thing about budgeting is it does everything, or you have to know everything. You have to know politics, you have to know economics, you have to know accounting in order to do budgeting well. So I'm going to start off and do a little bit of the economics first. I'm not an economist by, by training, but I've spent 30 years with an albatross of economist friends around my neck working with them. Uh, so let me do a little bit about the, the economic problem. Because what we have here is the intersection of economics, politics, and a series of rules. And in fact, we also have the intersection with that and demo- the changing demography of California. Okay? Um, we got an economic problem. It's not just California, although California is one of the worst places for it. Uh, the, we got really high unemployment. The last state number was 12.5. It'll be higher because the federal number just went up yesterday, as you know, and California always has higher unemployment than the nation, for one reason being friction, people coming in and out of the state. We also are one of the centers of the housing bubble. And in fact, when you look at the states that are in trouble in terms of their state budget, you'll see this in a second, it's the states that had a housing bubble. Um, I'm going to skip by a slide. Of the 20 largest metropolitan areas in terms of houses underwater, you know, uh, California has 13 of them, okay? So we, we are a state that has a history of boom-bust, and we've just gone through boom-bust in housing, and that's an indication of part of our problem. Uh, there's the, the fact that we have a housing problem tells you there's a decline in construction. We have a lot of houses out there for sale. You don't need to build new ones, okay? And finally, we are an exporting-centered state, and exports are down largely because of the financial crisis. Maybe that'll come back. Uh, let's see if this will work. All right. Unemployment. Uh, this compares the recessions of the prior decade to the current recession in terms of lost jobs. This is, uh, as you've heard on the news, we have an employment problem, and we've lost a lot of jobs in this recession. And um, this is what I talked about before uh, in terms of the housing problem. You pick out your favorite SMSA or metropolitan area in California. Uh, these are in the rank order of the size of the problem. And then in parentheses, the percentages there is the percentage of houses uh, that, ha- that have been foreclosed on. Okay? And the national rate is 0.6%. So you get a sense of how bad these areas are. By the way, this means for those of you who are in city, city government, uh, past several recessions, cities have not has actually weathered those very well. Not this time. Because what's going to happen, a lot of people are, are out there right now asking for their houses to property to be reassessed. And when that happens, revenues at the city level is going to go down the tubes. So we're, we're still in this problem. Okay, um, this refers to what was already mentioned. We've had a series of these. Uh, This is the size of the states don't have deficits because we don't borrow for it. In a state when uh, revenues are less than expenditures, you simply roll it over to the next year. So we call it shortfalls instead of borrowing because we don't borrow for the general fund in the short term. If you remember the great Gray Davis, 
the way he ran up a $28 billion deficit in California was he did it, he rolled it over for four years in a row. And then he got to 28, uh, four times seven equaling 28. So um, we, we continue to have them. It's an ongoing problem. It's not just a one-year problem. And we've been unwilling to bite the bullet. And by the way, as I tell my students, in my specialty, you don't need calculus. You don't need fast, fancy math. There's a simple equation out there. And, and state and local government expenditures have to equal revenues plus borrowing. Those things have to balance out, okay? And so in the past several administrations, we've been in the borrowing business. We've been other unwilling to either cut expenditures until this last year or to increase revenues. Both those things, by the way, involve pain. And uh, maybe the senator can tell you that politicians don't like to inflict pain. The, I guess the last California official that I know of that loved to inflict pain was Pete Wilson. Okay, we have not had a politician since to do this, okay? All right, here's California's problem. This is the size uh, in 2009 of the state shortfall. Uh, California had the third highest uh, state shortfall, much larger than other states. This is a percentage, by the way, of the budget, because obviously California is a much bigger jurisdiction than other places. You notice the two places that are bigger, bigger than us are right next to us, Nevada and Arizona. When you look at the ones up there, it's all the states that have had housing bubbles. Okay, so we have a big problem. It's much bigger than other states. One of the alums of our school used to run the state and local part of Moody's. And uh, she always said, well, other states have the same problem as California, but when California has a hole, it keeps digging. Uh, whereas, others, this was, uh, whereas other states tend to fill up the hole. Uh, okay, so we have a big problem. There's been a real dis uh, disagreement out there whether California's problem is a revenue problem or an expenditure problem. It's probably both, but in this recession, it's a revenue problem. The economy has just caused revenues to go down. This is, by the way, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger's numbers. So you, not... I'm not being a liberal Democrat here for these numbers. This is Department of Finance numbers, and they admit, you see the red line down there, that the pro current problem is caused by just a tremendous decline in state receipts. And that, in turn, is caused by the four factors that I mentioned at the very first slide, okay? Okay, I'm sorry I cut and paste. Oop, got to go back. Uh, this is the, si the size of the problem is quite huge. Uh, we've gone through a series of them, and... I'm a federal budget guy by training, so I think in terms of fiscal years, for some strange, wonderful reason, the state of California does everything in a year and a half. So uh, these things don't quite equal how we, the rest of us think of it. Uh, but we just went through a, economic, a cycle in which we closed a $60 billion gap. Now, this is a $60 billion gap for a budget that's about $120 billion, okay? so. For those, so since you're here at Cal, and you will hear us moan and groan about Cal, and I'm the chairman of the Capital and uh, Budget Planning Committee of the Academic Senate here at Berkeley, um, we just lost a third of our state revenues last year. Okay? That was the size of the cut. Uh, you know, not quite a third, maybe 25, 28%. Depends how you count. That's a big, big cut. Uh, Udoff is getting grief. Bergeron is getting grief. I'm more sympathetic to them. There comes a point at which the hole is so big 
that there's nothing you can do but inflict huge amounts of pain. And the pain comes from a disappearance of revenues and then a decision by the system to limit the amount of tax increases to make up that gap and instead to rely almost totally on expenditure cuts. Now, I say almost totally. I don't know if you can see these crazy slides because they're a little bit fuzzy. But, you know, we still haven't done it. Uh, a lot of, the, of our solution comes from the federal stimulus bill. That's a one-year stimulus bill. That won't be there next year. Uh, also, there's an other line there. You might not wonder what other is. That's because this is the governor's table as well. The governor doesn't like to put borrowing down. Uh, but that's what, that's what the other is, is mostly borrowing from future years and from uh, non-general fund accounts. So this is why in the, the problem doesn't disappear even though you've inflicted all this pain. Because the economic problem is more than a one-year problem, as Obama's learning right now. And the problem is so huge, even though you've inflicted a huge cut, $30 billion in spending cuts off a base, you know, of somewhere around $120 billion. Okay, and this is a year and a half. This is where I get a little bit mixed up. But in a regular thing, it would be $100 billion. So that's a big percentage cut, okay? And when you're at meetings, it's hard to defend UC when you realize that poor people have been cut even worse than UC, okay? Uh, Medi-Cal programs and, and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But everybody out there uh, who relied on public services has been cut. And even after that, you still have a real problem. So the bottom line here is big, big problem. We've done a lot of pain, but there's a lot more pain that has to be done to get back into balance, okay? And Obviously, in the past, you say, well, why we did it in the past? Why can't we do, do it again? We did it in the past because we went from boom to bust back to boom, okay? And uh, so the question is, will there be another boom? And that's a judgment that you make, uh, basically, on the nature of the recovery from this particular recession. If you think we're going to have a big recovery and it's going to be very fast, then more revenues will come in very quickly and this will disappear, but if you think it's going to be a slow recovery, which a lot of economists are predicting, or a jobless recovery, you think essentially that we have a multi-year problem and tough decisions await in the out years. How much time have I used up? I've got five more minutes. Okay. That's, now that you, now that you can stop crying, uh, okay. I want to switch to the, the political part of this and sort of lead into Henry's part. I, you know, the great thing about California, and we have these recessions, you can give the same talk again and again and again and again. <laughs> I'm on my fourth cycle now, okay? Um, and in the old days, I had a nice patter that I used to give, and I would point to lots of things. And the folk, Bruce Kane in political science would, and I would, and others. And there, here's the list of the things we would point to. We, you know, and now you have to understand, political scientists, American political scientists, about 90% of them think that James Madison is God. <laughs> we believe in representative government, okay? Uh, we believe in electing people who then do your business. The people in the American West don't believe that. You folks believe in direct democracy. You believe in the initiative process. You believe in term limits. We think these are horrible things, okay? So there's a bias there. So uh, 
But so academics would point, I could, we could go through a long thing on what's the limits of the direct initiative and why it might be a mistake, term limits and why they, they might be a mistake, but Californians love them. It's like Prop 13. You know, the fact that you have these two houses next to each other. When I first got here, the first time I did this, uh, Jack Citron, who's a political scientist here, had done a poll. Okay, There was no difference. Well, everybody loved Prop 13. And there was no difference between people who owned their house for 30 years versus people who owned their house for less than five years. Didn't make a difference. Those two houses next to each other, Californians love them. Um, so, and also a lot of people point to the uh, reapportionment process, uh, which actually we've changed and w- will be probably a better process. That we have a situation now where increasingly we uh, create districts where people get elected uh, again and again and again. And that actually has an effect that, that some people think leads to extremism because if you're a Democrat, you don't feel a re- fear a Republican. You fear someone in your own primary to the left of you. If you're a Republican, you don't fear a Democrat. You fear someone in the Republican primary to the right of you. Okay? So this is supposedly a reason for this. And I, then there's mine. How many of you know where we got the two-thirds voting requirement for uh, raising revenues? Yeah, but most Californians don't know that. I, we had a board of advisors meeting, and I had dinner with a very distinguished person. He didn't know that. It, that's the part of Prop 13 that I don't like more than the tax part. I can do other things to fix the tax part. This is my personal boogaboo. Everybody has their favorites. Okay. Uh, basically, all this interacts, and Henry is going to talk about this with polarization. Increasingly, and that's why this is being sponsored by a group that wants civility, when you have polarization, you have less and less civility out there. Essentially, everybody on one side, everybody on the other side. And so everybody says, well, that's the problem. That's the direct initiative leads that, you know, and districts lead to that and the other thing. And we have deadlock, which is why we can't agree either to raise taxes or uh, to cut spending or something like that, all right? And... uh, there's polarization in the California legislature, in the assembly. And this goes all the way back to the 19th century. And uh, it's basically not very polarized legislature. And all of a sudden, around the 1970s, bango, polarization, all right? And this is what everybody says. This is what's wrong with California. I had an epiphany the other day because I teach this. And I said, okay, California has all these things. I've lived in California for 20 years, but the Jesuits say... Give me your son for the first seven years. You can have him back, and I've got him for life. My first seven years were on the East Coast with, you know, East Coast-type politics. So I don't appreciate all these uh, progressive traditions. Uh, so obviously, if you had a state that didn't have all these things, everything would be wonderful, and you wouldn't have that polarization, right? There's polarization in the United States Congress. <laughs> no direct initiative you know, uh, United States senators, we haven't changed the districts very much. You know, all the things that liberals like me complain about California, or losers like me, aren't there in the United States Congress. Same polarization. Now, I have to shut up, but what's the difference? The difference is, remember Barack Obama, for those of you who are Democrats, uh, had to sell his soul to get the stimulus bill passed. That was for 60 votes. In California, he would need 66 votes. 
he would have had to come up with six more votes. So it's the interaction of polarization, however it's caused. It's a big topic in political science now, what's causing polarization. Okay, and Henry will explain that to you in a second. It's the interaction with that, with the decision rules of what it takes to pass things. Okay, and in California, we have decided that it requires two-thirds. Now, I have a theory. This is Elwood's theory. Uh, I'm going to see. There, okay. Let's get rid of the two-thirds rule. What would happen? We'd go back to uh, 1977. We're about to elect Jerry Brown governor. We might go back to 1977. Who knows? Uh, Small spot. But California in 1977 had the third highest tax burden in the country. It was a big tax, big government state. And Prop 13 really did make it a average tax for a while, average uh, service state. And it's creeped up a little bit. But we're about 16th in the country right now before the recession. So we're a medium-high, medium-high service state. If we got rid of the two-thirds, remember, it's a civil majority to pass spending. We, the Democrats would spend like mad, because that's what good Democrats do. Uh, okay, and so spending would go way up, but you have to balance your budget, and they, didn't, and they could do it with a simple majority. They'd raise taxes. Every Republican knows what Democrats will do. Okay, and, and what would happen then? you guys would vote them out of office, right? Because they would overreach. So my claim, and the reason I'm advocating getting rid of the two-thirds, is let's reintroduce normal politics. Let's let Democrats be Democrats, which is to blow it one way, and then the Republicans would come in and they would blow it the other way. The problem with the two-thirds rule, and you see I'm giving you a pitch here for a particular thing, is it's wonderful for both political parties. The Democrats can say, oh, we got to do this, and we would do it if it wasn't for the two-thirds rule. And the Republicans say, they can't do anything because of the two-thirds rule, and nothing gets done either way. And that's what, in my view, what leads to the deadlock. And the only way out of our problem, okay, is involving you're either going to have to cut spending, and you could cut spending. California is the 16th largest state government in the country. That tells you there are lots of other states that are small than we are. There's a lot of space. If you want to, I suggest Texas, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama. If, the nice thing about the United States, you can move with your feet to places that, where there's a lot smaller levels of public service. Okay, so it's out there. Are you willing to do it? On the other hand, there are a few places, and I've lived in all of them. Uh, actually, I've lived in all on both sides. My wife was born in Tennessee, lowest tax level in the United States. Then I taught in New Hampshire, second lowest tax level in the United States. On the other hand, I was born in New York, highest tax level in the United States. And I taught in Minnesota, second highest tax level in the United States. You have a choice. And if you had simple majority, you could pick the choice. And that's our problem. So my final slide, I'm going to jump way ahead, is for those of you who are old enough to remember the character Pogo. (laughs) Pogo had a famous saying, which is, we have met the enemy and they are us. So thank you very much. Okay, uh, Dean Brady is going to uh, use his technical skills to move on to the next. Well, John has stolen all my jokes, so uh, well, one of them was going to be that when we put this panel together, somebody said to me, well, will there still be a problem then in the fall? And I said, don't worry, we'll have it for years and years and years. We can make this an annual event. Um, 
So sadly, uh, California has continuing, ongoing fiscal crises. Uh, this is some work I did with Iris Way, who's a graduate student in political science. Uh, so some of the data here come from work we did together. I'm going to talk about California budgetary data over time, a little bit the same as John, but a little bit different look. Then California demographic and political trends, which will give you a little better idea about why the Republican Party acts the way it does. We're, John and I are political scientists. I'm also an economist. But as political scientists, we look for rational reasons why people do things. And we don't sit around and say, oh, those evil Democrats or those evil Republicans. We say, why do they do what they do? And so I'm going to try to give you uh, uh, some sense of why Republicans do what they do and why that affects California politics the way that it does. Uh, so partisan coalitions in California, what they look like. Regional polarization, which is very important. John talked a little bit about polarization. Then why the fiscal and political crises. And then finally, what is to be done, which of course is a famous Leninist uh, phrase, comes from a, a book that he wrote. Uh, and let me start here. Uh, this is like stuff John showed you. In uh, red is the expenditures, and green are the revenues, uh, money coming in. What you notice, that we've had problems during the dot-com bust and the current recession. Uh, this is uh, current dollars, so it just keeps going up because of inflation and so forth. But notice those yawning gaps that we get uh, right after 2000 and, of course, more recently uh, between our expenditures and our revenues. So that's basically what we've been struggling with. And to give you some idea of how this looks over the years, I've put the administrations, Duke Magian, Wilson, Davis, Schwarzenegger, and then you can see that, in fact, the problems have really become especially acute during those last two administrations. Okay, uh, this is uh, just an attempt to give you some idea of where the money goes. Uh, you'll notice that at the very top, K through 12, this is percentages of the total budget. And this is actually not the total budget, it's the general revenues. So these are the general revenues. So about 40% goes to education. Why is that so, K through 12? Actually, K through community college. Problem 98, right? So that's why you can see it keeps trying to get up there because it's supposed to be 40%. So it dips down a little bit, goes back up and so forth. The one I want to point your attention to, and this is part of the advertisement, look at the University of California percentage of the budget. Um, in 1984, corrections or criminal justice and the University of California alone had about the same percentage of the state budget. Actually, corrections was a little bit less. Look what's happened over time. The University of California's share of the budget has gone down to about two and a half, three percent. Corrections share has gone up to something like 12 or 13 percent. Uh, if we took 10 percent of the corrections budget right now and shipped it over to the University of California, we'd be in great shape. So a lot of what's happened is decisions we've made in the state of California about where we're going to put our money. Okay, uh, I'm going to use some California field polls. One of the things we did recently at the University of California at the Survey Research Center, which I ran until recently, was we took all the California field polls. I'm sure you're all familiar with those. They, they get uh, Periodically, you have a report from Mark DiCamillo and Murfield at the field poll telling you about current trends with respect to politics and other issues. Uh, and we have these archived at the University of California, and we've put them together into a time series over time. It's a really big job because we had to take almost 300 polls, uh, 300,000 respondents, put them into one big computer file, and look at the questions over time. And we did that from 1956 to 2008. And what it gives us is some great data over time. So here's some things, some trends over time. Ethnicity, for example. 
white non-Hispanic in these polls has been going down. By the way, when you see some of this stuff just going up and down real quickly, those are just usually sampling variability because these are polls. This is not census data. Uh, Hispanic numbers have gone up. Actually, one reason they went up is they started Spanish interviewing around 1992. And before then, they got fewer Hispanics, uh, not surprisingly. But so, white non-Hispanic going down, Hispanics going up, uh, Asians going slightly up, and uh, the uh, blacks staying pretty steady. So those are the ethnic trends in California. Here's Californians are becoming more educated. You may wonder, why am I doing this? Well, what I'm going to do in a minute and tell you about who's in the two parties and how the, the demographic composition of the parties has changed and how that's changed their politics in important ways. Uh, high school grads have gone down. Those with college have gone up. So it used to be in the 50s, 60s, high school grads were the majority of the population, then with some college, then BA or above, and finally eighth grade or less. Now it's just switched around, so we have BA or above, some college, high school grad, eighth grade or less. And then finally, religious preferences in the state. Uh, Protestants are going down. Catholics are going up. A lot of that's the Latino factor. And then the other thing that's going up is uh, no religion. People who say, I I just don't have any religious uh, affiliation. So what do we have about conclusions about demographics? Well, the groups that are decreasing are white non-Hispanics. Latinos are going up. People are becoming more highly educated. And they're becoming less Protestant and more Catholic and no religion at all. Okay, let's look at who's in the parties. Because I'm, where I'm going is this. The Republican Party has a group of people in it, which increasingly are the people who are not in the state of California. And so that one of their problems in this state is they've cast their lot with demographic groups which are declining in California. And I think that lends a particular aspect to their politics. Um, so let's go... Uh, First of all, just look at partisanship. One other thing that's happening is partisanship's going down. Notice the decline in party affiliation for both parties since 1988. That means independents are going up. People, when they register, say, I'm an independent, or when they answer a survey question. Uh, Notice that we're more Democrats than Republicans in this state. So we're a Democratic state, basically. So what's happened over time? For various demographic groups, what we're going to do is we're going to plot the percentage that associates with the Republican Party among those that associate with one party or another. So we're sort of looking at, for a given demographic group, what percentage of that group associates with the Republicans. For example, the percentage of males over time who are Republicans among those who affiliate with either the Democratic or Republican Party. So a percentage above 50% indicates that more than half the males associate with the Republican Party. And then, by the way, that means fewer females. So let's look at this. What's going on in the Republican Party? It's becoming a party that's not evenly divided between the sexes. In fact, it's got more males than females. It's more popular among males than it is among females. So that's one thing. Uh, But this is more important, I think. And it's a little complex, so you may just want to read what I say as the conclusion. You would think the Republican Party would be the party, sort of historically, we think of as the better educated. Those with uh, college diplomas and college degrees and so forth. But in fact, in California, increasingly, it's the people with just some college 
or even with just high school education that are in the Republican Party. So the Republican Party, which used to be the much better educated party, is now less and less that. Democrats are still less well-educated because they have a lot of people with very little education in them, in that party. But there's, for the Republicans, they're losing, quite surprisingly, those people with college educations. And by the way, remember, that was one of the demographic groups that was getting bigger. Another group that they're not doing well with is Latinos. They've never done well with blacks. They're doing poorly with Latinos. The Latinos here are this dashed line that sort of you can see they're way below 50% for Latinos. Most Latinos identify not with Republicans, but with the Democratic Party. Uh, Non-Hispanic whites are about split evenly between the two parties. Uh, But the Republican Party, therefore, since it doesn't have any Hispanics, doesn't have many blacks, doesn't have many Asians, is mostly non-Hispanic white. And what was one of the groups that was decreasing in the state of California? Non-Hispanic white. And then, finally, Protestants are increasingly, the, the, the Republicans get a lot of the Protestants, don't do so with Catholics, don't do so well with people who say they have no religious affiliation. What were the groups that were increasing? Those who were Catholics, those who did not have any religious affiliation. What's the group that's decreasing in California? Protestants. So the Republicans are increasingly a set of demographics which are not the demographics of California. So they're winning males, losing females, starting to lose college-educated, doing well among higher income, uh, losing Asians, Hispanics, and blacks, losing Catholics and those with no religion, and gaining among Protestants. Their gains are among groups that are getting smaller in California. It's not a good prospect, therefore, for the Republican Party. Uh, The other thing that's happening, and this is something John talked about, is those affiliated with parties are more ideologically polarized. We have a measure on these surveys. Unfortunately, they changed the question at one point a little bit. Uh, But it asks about your ideology. Are you liberal or conservative? And more liberal answers are towards the top. Uh, So it goes from one to three. You can be uh, conservative. You can be two. You're not sure. You're in between. Or number three, you can be liberal. So... Democrats are more liberal, and they're getting more liberal, the Democratic Party. Members of the Democratic Party, those in polls, are increasingly more liberal over time. Republicans are getting more conservative. The important thing is there's a yawning gap between the two parties ideologically. Real differences of opinion. That shouldn't be a surprise if you read the paper. Another kind of polarization we have in the state is if we think of four regions of California, think of the Bay Area, sort of an expanded Bay Area, Los Angeles County, and then Southern California is the green there, except for L.A., and then the rest of the state, which is basically the Central Valley and mountains, a little bit more. But we can't get too many regions here because the data can't be cut too finely. But we've got four areas, basically expanded Bay Area, Los Angeles on the one hand, Central and Mountain, and Southern California without L.A. on the other hand. And if we look at what's happened there, in the 60s and 70s, the percent Republican was the same essentially for all the regions that I've just mentioned. And over time, what's happened, it's spread out. And now, Southern California without LA is highly Republican. Uh, The Central and Mountain is Republican, Central Valley. And the Bay Area and Los Angeles are Democratic. So we have tremendous geographic polarization. What does that do? Well, we have ideological polarization among those affiliated with the parties, and we have party polarization by regions. 
So why the fiscal crisis? Well, I didn't go into this in detail, but you could see from the pictures that revenues go up and down quite a bit. This is because we have a highly elastic tax system. We rely heavily on a progressive income tax and capital gains taxation. Uh, that means that in good times we're doing great and in bad times we're doing terrible. That's why we get the ups and downs. The Parsky Commission, which just reported the other day, was an attempt to try to solve that by getting a better structure of our tax system. One reason we have a highly elastic tax system is we w moved away from property taxes and we had to do something else to replace those revenues. We have propositions which constrain spending and make it hard to cut spending when you come to a, a point where you need to do that because you've overspent. So spending is constrained, can't cut it easily, revenues are volatile. This is not a good recipe. Why are the political crisis? Term limits, they reduce legislator expertise, so it's harder for them to figure out how to cut when times come where you've got to cut. It decreases incentives to be a compromiser. If you know you're not going to be in a uh, the Senate or the Assembly for very long. Why should you be a compromiser? Uh, there's going to be real costs to that. You're not going to have a career there. You've really got to be thinking about your next primary election. And then you've got party ideological polarization, which I've shown you. Two parties, which are quite different. We've got regional party polarization. So different districts have quite different kinds of people in them. And then districting, the way we district things, that's partly just what we do. We have to put things into compact little districts. We end up with Republican, safe Republican, safe Democratic districts. Legislators only worry about primary challenges, just as I say here. Republicans, they fear being accused in a primary of being pro-taxes, and therefore they're going to do everything to be against taxes. The Democrats fear being accused of not spending enough, and supporting cuts to services, and therefore they're in a situation where they're not going to do that because in the next primary they don't want to be accused of cutting services. So both sides have incentives not to compromise and to take very tough-minded positions. So going on, so just to put it sort of bluntly, legislators, with the exception of the person we have here today, they don't know much about substance. They don't know much about each other because they're not there very long. And they have no incentive to compromise politically. This is not a good situation. And then Proposition 13 requires two-thirds vote. So, again, getting to John's point, um, we have a situation where we have folks highly polarized, don't know much about each other, don't much, often know much about the substance, and we require two-thirds of them to agree. That's a lot. So is supermajoritarianism a good policy? Well, right now in the state of California, this is how we do it. You can have a constitutional amendment with an initiative and only require a 50% vote. So you can change the rules of the game, as Prop 13 did, with only 50% plus one person. Most political scientists say, well, gee, if you're going to change the rules of the game, that should be hard. shouldn't make that too easy because that's going to really mess things up often. But we make it easy in California. Then what we do is say, but everyday business, you need a two-thirds vote. So just the stuff we got to do every day, like budgets and taxes, we need a two-thirds vote. Most political scientists, in fact, all that I know, would say this is just backwards. This is not the way we should do it. We got it backwards. So, and then the Republican dilemma is increasingly uh, they represent vanishing demographics. 
They can only survive by playing to their base and by standing tough on taxes. So they're in an especially difficult position. I think they're doing rationally the right thing from their perspective. It's a short-term strategy, I think, too. I don't think it's a long-term strategy. But I think in the short term, it's just right. It's going to keep them in office individually uh, for a while longer. And so they have every incentive to continue doing what they're doing. And so solutions repealing Prop 13, especially the part that requires a two-thirds vote for taxes. Uh, John's made the case. And then another possibility is a constitutional convention, and I will leave it there, and we can maybe talk about that in questions and answers. Thanks. Introducing Carol, uh, I'd like to highlight the fact that she is chair of the Human Services Committee on the Education Committee and is also on Elections, Reapportionment, and Constitutional Amendments Committee. So there's a lot of relevance to what we're going to be hearing. So, Carol, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to join you this afternoon for this very, very timely topic, the California budget crisis. And you may know, um, I have some notes here that I'm going to speak to, but I certainly am always open to lots of comments. And I would agree with the um, analysis of um, the professors here about what's going on in California. But this last year was incredible. I just got elected in uh, November in 2008 to the state senate. And um, the usual pattern is that you get sworn in in December, and then you go, come back in January, and then you start the session again. Well, because last year was such a horrendous year in terms of the budget, we, then the, the prior legislature could not come to an agreement. After we got sworn in in December, we went right to work in December. And we didn't settle that last year's budget until February of this year. And then we had this year's budget to deal with, which typically we didn't get done on time, but that's another story. So, I, you know, um, the legislature was not only in regular session this last year. We had four special sessions, and some of those sessions resulted in all-night sessions. And at my age, it's really tough to make good decisions at 3 o'clock in the morning and this year, we're continuing this. I mean, we have finished our work as of September 11th. Actually, it was 6 o'clock in the morning on September 12th. But because the Senate failed to get two-thirds vote on uh, about eight items that dealt with money, we need, so we needed two-thirds vote, <clears throat> we're going back in October, the second weekend of October, to reconsider some of those items. In actuality, we left about $4 billion on the table because we couldn't get one vote. The Assembly passed it all out. Their Republican votes, they got the, and they needed four Republican votes. The Senate needs two Repu uh, Republican votes. They got their votes out. But that's another story here. Let me just try to recap what happened since February of 2009, this current year. This year, we tried to close, uh, or we attempted to close, because we have to close a $41 billion budget gap with a combination of cuts, borrowing, and taxes, and some of you say sleight of hand. About $6 billion of that package depended on vote, you voters in May, uh, on the May ballot, 
which failed incredibly at the polls. So by June, uh, the state's fiscal situation worsened, and together with the failed ballot measures and the decrease in revenues, we were facing an additional $24 billion deficit. Now, I understand the tenor of the populace here is that we elect you to do it. You got us in this problem. You solve it. So the governor issued a new proposed budget, and the legislative conference committee composed of members of the Assembly and Senate was formed. And after two weeks of public hearings and deliberations, the conference committee submitted its recommended budget to both houses. This was the basis for a budget adopted in the legislature this last July. It was signed by the governor, but he also blue-penciled, that means he vetoed, some of the elements of the budget that uh, were sent to him. The president, pro tem, as it turns out, and several members of the legislature, and I'm one of those, have filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the governor's line-item vetoes. For instance, he lined item every domestic uh, violence shelter in the state of California, so that will no longer exist beginning January of this next year. To summarize briefly, the July 2009 budget consisted of close to $16 billion in cuts. That's a billion dollars from the University of California, six-plus billion from the K-14 system, we um, there were revenues um, of there were revenues of three point nine billion, but those were really um, things um, that we got by increasing payroll. Well, I guess just by furloughs by the folks in the state government um, not getting paid. We borrowed uh, two, two, a little bit over two billion. And that was from Prop 1A, which goes to local governments. And uh, it just meant paying local governments at a slower rate. Uh, we suspended those payments. There were some fund shifts and deferrals. And so we came up with $24.4 billion of, of uh, shortfall that we had to make. Now, as we discuss going forward, the challenges the California economy faces and how it can be fixed, it is important to understand the makings of our own current crisis. And clearly, California's crisis is part of the national global economic crisis, as has been stated in the recession. But the fundamentals of California's economic resiliencies are deep-seated in this state's history. Since 1911, the state has had an initiative process in place that enables ballot measures delineating specific spending programs without identifying funding sources to be placed on the ballot. And as a side note, I would add that this right was approved by voters in the same year that women got the right to vote. The requirement for two-thirds vote in the legislature to approve a tax increase dates back to 1933. And since, these limita since then, limitations on the California state budget have accelerated, most famously is Prop 13 in 1978, which limits property taxation to 1% of the purchase, property, purchase price of the property. Admittedly, this was a reaction to the legislature's inability to respond to the plight of fixed-income senior folks whose property tax rates were forcing them out of their homes. 
1988, another famous initiative, Prop 98, guaranteed schools a minimum share of the state's budget expenditures at 40, about 40%. That's just K-14. In 1994, three strikes committed more criminals to life terms in the state's prison system. Uh, in 2002, Governor Schwarzenegger, before he became governor, um, had an initiative on the ballot, Prop 49, which set aside monies for a worthy cause after school programs. But that money comes out of Prop 98. We all acknowledge that the California budget and program funding needs fixed, needs a fix. And I think it can be fixed, but only, only if existing stakeholders in the current system are willing to relinquish their personal stake or position in a system for the common good. It's important to understand that politics behind the policy of budget making in California. Among Republicans and Democrats, those who are willing to sacrifice their own political future for the well-being of the state have suffered. In February, um, Senator Dave Cogdell from Merced area, a Republican, lost his Republican leadership position as a result of his willingness to negotiate a budget compromise that included some tax increases to close the state's budget gap. And other Republican legislators this fall who voted for the compromise are targets of recall elections. In the face of California's budget deficit, uh, Democrats voted for cuts to education and social service programs. So, you know, we hate it, but we did it. And um, those things we would never have done in better times. And those most affected by the budget cuts this year were students, disadvantaged, the disabled, and infirmed. Easy people to pick on. There are very many recommendations for how we can fix California's budget and tax system and restore our state to economic prosperity, and a number of studies, commissions, committees have been formed and proffered their recommendations. And these include, and you have seen them, and we will be talking more about them, is shifting more tax burden to the wealthy, shifting more tax burden to the middle class, eliminating the two-thirds approval for legislative passage of a budget while retaining the two-thirds vote for taxes, changing the annual budget cycle to a two-year cycle rather than a one-year cycle, requiring ballot initiatives to designating the funding source. Independent organizations, California Forward, the Bay Area Council in particular, have proposed a constitutional convention to be convened to uh, tackle California's budget and taxation reforms. Arguments vary as to whether a constitutional reform should be accomplished via a convention or the legislature. It should be noted that the constitutional revision recommendations produced during the Wilson's administration were never implemented, and that's in the late 1990s. The question of which institutional structure, independent or legislative, will have the greatest credibility to marshal public support remains unanswered. And I certainly acknowledge the public trust in the legislature is very low. Most recently, the Governor's Commission on the 21st Century uh, Economy proposed a series of revenue-neutral recommendations that the legislature will consider in a special session this fall. And concerns over the distribution of tax burden relative to the ability to pay will be central to the debate. 
And for most folks, it's a non-starter right out of the gate. The bottom line for the future of California is that the problems are cumulative, they're complex, the solutions are multidimensional and not without risk. Whatever reforms we adopt must be vetted for unintended consequences and should be implemented incrementally rather than wholesale so we can monitor outcomes as they develop. I know we all want to solve it, to get on with our lives. But it is, as these folks have explained and you have seen, it is a very, very complicated process. There are no easy fixes, no magic wands that would have you believe that a part-time legislature, which is on the ballot next year, is the answer. And I would argue that rotating members quickly through the system without giving them the opportunity to understand the history or the complexity of the issues or the potential for unintended consequences to quick, of quick fixes does not benefit the California electorate. And I believe the fundamental problem in, in, is that California wants the state to provide them with more services than they're willing to fund. To make decisions about what they are willing to pay for, all of us, the public needs to be presented with facts. And this brings me to my final comment regarding the media's role in informing the public about the challenges facing California's economic future. As we were struggling with the budget compromises in February and July, the media seemed to be more focused on our inability to come to an agreement on critical issues in the face of a two-thirds uh, vote requirement rather than on the essence of our disagreements. Only after budget cuts were passed did the media begin to discuss the impact on children, the elderly, and the disabled. And as a result of their shift in reporting since July, the July budget was adopted, Republicans have been willing to modify their positions and reach agreement on a measure to restore funding to healthy families uh, that provide insurance to children of the working poor, and to consider ways to minimize impacts of the budget cuts for services for the disabled. If we are to effectively assess California's future, it's essential that we understand what the most effective solutions are and who are the most credible messengers to garner stakeholder and public support. And the questions I propose for our panel are, what revisions to California's budget processes are critical to assuring the state's economic prosperity? How can those revisions be incrementally implemented without risking serious unintended consequences? And which revisions have the most likelihood of being embraced by the public? And what institutions have the most credibility to promote those revisions to the electorate? I really look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator. I, I think uh, I'm going to turn to uh, John and Henry to perhaps respond to Carol's question. And I think one of the things that's very interesting here, I think it's been a terrific uh, discussion. All three presentations have been very insightful. I've learned a great deal. And when you're dealing with complexities, I think one of the great challenges is to really focus on priorities. I mean, there's so many issues here. So John and Henry, what's number one in your mind? If you could do one thing, 
if you could change it, and also, how would you do it? I mean, how would a constitutional convention come to pass? How would the change in the two-thirds rule come to pass? So, Henry, you're closest to the microphone, so maybe I'll turn to you first. Well, I think, I think the first question is uh, trying to find out whether or not there'd be public support for a change in the two-thirds rule. And there's some polling going on right now that I'm involved with the field poll to do, which is asking questions about just that. And it'll be interesting to see if, given all the difficulties we've had, whether finally we're seeing some movement where people realize how, how problematic that rule is. I don't know that we necessarily have to go all the way to 50%, but perhaps something like 60%, something that would at least make it possible to get decisions made and for us to move forward. Uh, Political scientists like myself historically hate constitutional conventions and think they're a terrible idea because they typically lead to all sorts of changes which are really, really bad uh, because, to put it bluntly, all the crazies get to the convention and put a lot of time and effort into trying to do crazy things. On the other hand, some of us are getting to the point where we're worried that things are so bad in California, maybe that's worth thinking about uh, in a way that it just wasn't even uh, something we wanted to think about five years ago. I have one change I want to do, and get rid of two-thirds to raise taxes. And I say that because, I, as I said in my presentation, I think that would reintroduce politics. Not that it would give you nirvana, uh, it would lead to some bad policies, but it would essentially force both sides to actually grapple with the real issues, which they don't have to do now. Having said that, uh, truth in lending or truth in whatever, I'm a member of the board of the California Budget Project. Uh, I'm the conservative on that board. Uh, everybody else comes from the churches and labor. We don't lie about numbers, but uh, we're of the left, okay? About seven years ago, we put an initiative on the ballot uh, to lower the two-thirds to 55%. We did that. SEIU was the union that paid for the polling. We were way ahead in the polls until the Howard Jarvis Taxpayer Association weighed in. We lost two to one. Uh, the problem is, and that's why I ended with the Pogo uh, cartoon, I'm not sure the voters want it. Uh, there's another Brady in academia in California. David Brady, he teaches at Stanford. He's very bright, almost as bright as Henry. Not quite, but almost as bright. And we have periodic academic meetings, um, usually at Stanford, because they provide better food. They're richer. Um, and we, we have these meetings in which the Berkeley representation is sort of progressive reform and the Stanford people are the pro-business types. And I sit next to David, because I'm a friend of David, and I sit, lean over to David and I said, David, what do you want to get rid of the two-thirds? And David thinks for about half a second and says, you'll never get it out of me. Okay? There's an econometric study by Ann Case and a guy named Beasley in the UK, because uh, we have pretty good data from 1946 onward in terms of across the states. Um, if you have a supermajority to raise revenues in, in an American state, your state and local revenue burden is eight percentage points lower than it would otherwise be. For those of you who are conservatives, you should love the two-thirds. It really does lead to a smaller government. I mean, it might lead to inefficiencies that we've been talking about, but it's effective. And that's the problem. People, as Henry said, people are acting rationally not just in terms of their careers, but in terms of what they want to achieve in terms of the type of state and environment they want to live in. And so we have to figure out a way of breaking out of this or live with the consequences of the rules that we have now. 
Thank you. Uh, Carol, before I open it up to the floor for questions, I wonder if you have any open, uh, opening remarks in response to the others. And I do want to interject the point that uh, both John and Henry alluded to term limits. And uh, I think it's fair to say that you were termed out from your uh, position in the assembly, and then you transitioned to the Senate. So you're in a unique position. You've survived. But at the same time, I'd be interested in your perspective on term limits. Well, I do know that uh, in the assembly, it's very problematic. The term limit in the assembly is six years. So you're elected for three two-year terms. And I can tell you that um, uh, coming back this year in the Senate, and when I went before the assembly committees, I didn't know who some of those folks were because they had come in uh, either at my, my election or the previous election, and if you don't sit on a committee, and if you don't have social contact with somebody, they are total strangers to you. You can't uh, shake, I mean, you can shake hands and be friendly, but you, it's hardly uh, a way to build confidence when politics is about relationships and trust, and it's really tough to get somebody to, a to ask someone for a vote who is a total stranger to you. Mm -hmm. So term limits, especially in the assembly, every other, every other year, a third of that body is turned over to brand new folks. And uh, it takes about four years not only to learn where the bathroom is, but really how the process works. And, um, and you don't even know all the nuances or the his you don't have history. And um, it's, so it's problematic for, for them. Now, in the Senate, as it's currently uh, made up, we are, there are 40 members. Every one of us, except for one, has come from the Assembly. And um, there's one who came from, uh, Alex Padilla, who came f immediately from the City Council in uh, Los Angeles to the State Senate. So um, it's, we have had history together, Republican Democrat, we have had history together. And uh, we know each other's foibles. And there's, it's a little bit more collegial. It's a smaller group. 40 is a good-sized class. And, um, you know, there's exchanges among Republicans and Democrats uh, at dinners and things like that. We do try to extend that um, civility between us. But it's not, it doesn't happen uh, among the 80 members in the assembly simply because it's not only larger, but you have, as I say, strangers coming in every uh, a third of them every other year. We'll take three questions here, here, and here. Okay, we'll start here. In, in. Well, I'm concerned about the term limits. Uh, to me, it's like we had this lifetime public works project. We hire an engineering firm, and we say, but no engineer can have worked for the firm for more than six years. And with all respect to Senator Liu, right now we voted ourselves into having essentially amateurs running the government. Okay, there's term limits in, in the middle here, over here. I'm wondering, I, I guess I'm less optimistic about reaching any compromise anytime soon, so I'm wondering if there's going to be a millennial makeover where at some point there's a nexus between uh, the next generation coming up, improving, uh, growing the Democratic Party, the reduction of um, non-Hispanic whites in the state, uh, and then there becomes a, a paradigm shift, and uh, we finally move away from the two-thirds majority as a result of that. Has there been any study about that, how many years that might be out? 
I'd like to return to the question about Prop 13. I've heard it discussed in terms of repealing it. I don't sense there's much political broad base for that. Why is there no discussion of reforming Prop 13 along the lines of equal, equal taxation? And by the way, I wrote the rebuttal to the Prop 13 initiative in 1977 or 78. <laughs> okay, we have, a, we have a questions on term limits, prison guards, I'll characterize it as the paradigm shift, and Proposition 13, revision as opposed to overturn. Well, let me talk about prison guards just quickly. The, uh, we have to make a decision about what we want to do with criminal justice. The, uh, the legislature, remember, put off, I think it was $2 billion in cuts uh, in the criminal justice area, and then in the end we're only able to get a uh, billion dollars worth of... Uh, 1.2 and they got 600 million. So it's just such a contentious area. And to the degree that we all believe that if we just put everybody in jail who commits a crime, we're going to solve our problems, it's going to get more and more expensive. I think we have to look at what kinds of folks probably should be in jail. And obviously, Mr. Garrido, for example, from Antioch, uh, we, we can all agree, he should be in jail for a very, very long time. But it's not clear that somebody who just commits a drug offense, nonviolent drug offense, should be in jail for a long time. It's just not clear what we're getting from that at $47,000 per prisoner per year, when in fact some kind of uh, program that tries to rehabilitate that person could possibly be better for that person and for the society. And let me just add to that. It's... it's um when I first entered the legislature in 2000, uh, the, uh, the, bu- the budget for a higher education total was about $11, $13 billion. And um, criminal justice system today exceeds what we pay for higher education in this state. And, uh, you know, if, if we're willing to incarcerate, continue to incarcerate every person that... Um, I have a modest proposal proposal to turn Berkeley into a prison. Prison guards are are well paid. Uh, A lot of our students love Berkeley. They'd probably like to stay a long time. Um, It it might work very, very well, and the funding would be unlimited. John, do you want to take on the question of the paradigm shift as far as when does it when does the nexus turn? Or, and also we have term limits in the Proposition 13 revision question on them. Uh, uh, paradigm shift is too big for, uh, for me. Um, <laughs> I want to point out, however, that California is going through a demographic change or shift of the equivalent of what happened on the East Coast in 1880-1920. Mm-hmm. And so people have been talking a lot about schools and things like that. It's a lot easier to teach young kids who are the offspring uh, from people who arrive here from Iowa than it is to teach kids who English is not their first language and they come from rural backgrounds somewhere in Latin America, you know, or Asia. Uh, it's a lot more difficult than it was before. You know, on the other hand, we know that immigrants as a group always pay for themselves. Uh, because you don't need very many successes to overcome all the failures. And so uh, there's a real question for the state. Are you willing to invest in your future? And 
I want, there is another study out there about polarization that I have to mention because it relates to immigration. From One guy actually is at UC San Diego, but the other guys are at Princeton that look at national polarization. And they uh, have these wonderful graphs, and uh, uh, at least the pattern is wonderful uh, from a point of view it looks right. One is that polarization rises and falls with the percentage of foreign-born. California uh, used to have a very low percentage of foreign-born after World War II. We are now either the highest or second highest state in terms of percentage of foreign-born. So that could be one of the things that's really driving it. The other thing that uh, in their analysis that drives polarization is increase in income inequality. And once again, California used to be a state that had relatively, it's never equal, but relatively equal incomes. We are now much less equal than we used to be. So big changes are going on out there leading to polarization beside all the institutional things that we're talking about. Uh, It's, as they used to say, above my pay scale to figure out what to do about all that. Um, I will say on the prisons, by the way, that, you know, we used to say, will California become Texas? Because Texas has a very high incarceration rate. Texas is getting rid of its prisoners. Um, And now why can Texas do it when we can't? I wouldn't be surprised. One reason is they don't believe in unions in Texas. Uh, so I would just a hypothesis that their prison guard union does not have the power of our prison guard union. We have a pattern in California, and might as well be fair here. For all our moaning and groaning about K-12, California K-12 teachers are paid more than K-12 teachers in any other state now. They've passed Connecticut. So California has had a pattern since World, since World War II of having relatively few civil servants per capita and paying them a ton. Uh, and so, once again, these are the trade-offs you make. Uh, and I'm not sure which is the right way to go. But, the, but there are other places that you can look to in terms of alternative ways of dealing with the very tough trade-offs excuse me, that you're going to have to make to deal with these big budget problems. But in education, K through 12, we do pay very little per capita per student. Okay, we have high teacher salaries, that's true, but actually the total amount we spend per capita per student is actually very low. We have had, we have the biggest classes and we've had the biggest classes since 1945. It's not a recent phenomenon, it's a California pattern. So what we have is big classes, as you say. It's just just to be clear on what's going on here. I want to make a quick editorial point. It was pointed out to me that Bob Herbert wrote an excellent piece, op-ed piece, in the New York Times today about the University of California and Berkeley specifically. It's called Cracks in the Future. I'd really encourage everyone to read it, and I am going to be a little bit of a salesperson here. We're very proud of Berkeley and how it's ranked always and the like, but there's an area where we're ranked very low, and that's percentage of alumni that give. I mean, I'm a, I grew up in Palo Alto. I am a very competitive person towards Stanford, where my brothers went. But they give like 60% of their alums give, and it, in Berkeley it's like 12%. And it would be inappropriate for me to encourage people to give a certain amount. But to give something, I feel, is within the confines of common sense. That anyone that enjoyed what we have in Berkeley, we should be giving something back to the extent that we can. Uh, Again, uh, we're over time, but if, if we want to do one more round of four questions, uh, okay, let's do that. And again, people feel free to go, and no one's going to take offense. And the way back? What states, what 
Okay, so we have a good models question. Gentleman right here. Yeah, I could retire in three and a half years, and this proposition, the repealing of Proposition 13, is something that's important to me because it's going to set my retirement clock. If we go down that route and repeal it, what can I expect in post retirement as increases on property my income? Okay. Uh, what's going to be the impact in the real world on retirement? Uh, Professor Lakoff said that he filed papers on a 14 word referendum to get us back to 50%. What you're saying, the chances of passing something like they're slim and done. Well, we're going to see what the new polling shows. Historically, we found that people are very favorable okay. towards it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. Here. I noticed from your slides that expenditures have increased in California over the past five years about 35, 40%. Yeah. What's driving it? And if, gee, if we cut that back, would we be in the situation that, that we're in right now? Okay, and here? Uh, big question. I wonder how many people would be more prone to vote to remove term limits if redistricting were already in place. Uh huh. That's a very interesting question. So, term limits yeah. and the like. Oh, that's you know, one thing, before turning it over to the panel to answer those questions, uh, one thing I'd make an observation on Proposition 13. Do you realize that that goes on to another generation? In other words, my father lives in a home in Palo Alto that he bought in 1947. He's now 97 years old. When he passes away, by assuming my brothers and I inherit it, we keep the 1947 tax rate. What? I mean, it's... I mean, anyway. Uh, any uh, do you, do you have comments on? Well, I, I, I want to be clear. When we talk about repealing Prop 13, the thing John and I, I think, are focused on is the two-thirds rule. We're less focused upon the question of, uh, of the inequities, which is what Dick was just talking about with respect to the property tax that occur because of the fact that it only increases at 2% per year if you uh, continue to live in it and it's not reassessed because you haven't uh, bought, bought it recently. Uh, I think there are other ways to help people with respect to property taxes and houses uh, that we could figure out. There's been lots of proposals. I don't want to get into all the details, but there are ways of doing that that would be a lot cheaper for the state and a lot more fair in terms of uh, the people who live next door to one another who have remarkably different tax rates. So there are ways to solve your problem. There really, really are, uh, and we could figure that out. Also, was looking at what we call split roll because uh, to divide the uh, the private property taxes versus the commercial property taxes, business property. So um, whether or not that gathers any traction, at least we are talking. We've been talking about it for twenty years, but you know, this is the time of crisis. Maybe we'll do something about it. That's more anti-business. Yeah. Well. Well, you know, there's a very interesting question here too on the question of on term limits with twinning it with redistricting. And also, that, I think that relates a little bit uh, to the question before that, Carol, you alluded to of uh, we pass referendum without any requirement of how it's going to be paid for. So maybe put those two together a little bit of well, trying to have more accountability on citizens' legislative actions. Correct. And, I, you know, but there's, I tell you, the legislature is very gun-shy to... Um, challenge 
the voters in terms of good, pu- vers- good public policy versus stakeholders in the game. And um, so that's why Proposition 13 has never been, there's never been a politician who stand up and say, I'm going to change Prop 13. It's be shot down immediately. So, so but, the, but the interesting question is, is that would, you know, voters change term limits. Voters change the open primary. Voters changed, uh, you know, uh, when, put all these restrictions on your politicians. Um, in fact, politicians today, you, you think that um, we are all fat and happy, but, uh, you know, we are facing an 18% cut in our pay. We don't have a, uh, a retirement system, et cetera, that gets paid for, you know, we don't pay into a retirement system except for Social Security. So it's not, so you have taken away many of the, quote, the benefits of uh, serving in this body, except that you find people wanting to serve, continually wanting to serve, which I find remarkable. But, uh, but I do think, now I was elected in 2000, we had the open primary. My original lines were drawn by the courts. And, um, and I got lots of crossover votes because I was on local government uh, body in a, in a very traditional Republican community. And so and I do think that's beneficial. I mean, I do, I do, you know, I learned a lot. And I do think um, that's beneficial for the people that you want to represent you. Because it does bring, to, and, I, and I do find that in, my voting, in the voting patterns, the longer I stay in office, the more votes I get. And the more, vote I get, more votes I get, I get from the independents, which are people who have left the Republican Party. I would like to reiterate that uh, the gentleman's concern about the bureaucracy, and the question was what maybe it was overstated of how much it costs us. At the same time, I've been involved with professors here who are stunned at how much construction costs on the Berkeley campus. They're coming from the University of Wisconsin or whatever. They come here, we're going to build a new building, and it costs 50% more than it did in Wisconsin. And if I think if you slice and dice it, bureaucratic requirements are going to be a component of that. So the issue is how, and oftentimes, I think if you've done a home remodel, you know what bureaucracy is all about. Uh, How do we address these issues of bureaucracy to try and add perhaps some elements of common sense to some of these issues? Um, Okay, there is a a movement called the New Public Administration out there, or uh, New Public Management, that basically says what we should, the way to make bureaucracy better is to add the competition that you have in the private sector inside bureaucracies, okay? Mm -hmm. So we were, we put up a new building at the Goldman School. I was on the building committee. Uh, The dean at the time was having heart palpitations. Uh, We kicked him off the building committee and the heart palpitations went away. We went to the university here and begged to be a test case to allow us to build this building as if we were a private sector firm Mm -hmm. instead of part of the University of California. We got turned down. Um, Now, why are all those rules there? Those rules are there because they're interest groups that want to achieve certain public policy goals, environmental goals, labor goals, whatever. Uh, and And basically what you have to do is decide the outcome, you know, the, the policy outcome that you want to achieve. So I was thinking about the gentleman who asked about what's a good budget system. Mm-hmm. And there are, a governing magazine passes, uh, excuse me, pr- uh, publishes once a year the best states in terms of budgeting system. They love Virginia. 
I taught in Virginia. Virginia, everybody's right of Attila the Hun, and they all get together and they love each other dearly. California's problem, I mean, what is a good budget system? We should, as technicians, budget technicians, we should be able to tell decision makers and you, the public, the consequences of alternative policies. Mm -hmm. We also should give you, essentially, uh, the tools to achieve the goals that you want to achieve. I'm a believer that California has all those things. When the Governor Schwarzenegger first came in, he brought in a budget director from Florida who said we had a terrible budget system. We have an infinitely better budget system than in Florida. The difference is in California, half of you want to do X and half of you want to do Y, and it takes two-thirds of you to agree on to do it. Okay, that's the problem. I'm a political scientist. I believe the problem is political, not the technique. We can give you every technique. You can go on the web and get the most wonderful data about what happens in California. You might not like what California does, but that's, those, that's the outcome of the system. If we had a place, I'll come to you in a second, if we had a place where everybody was all the way to the left or everybody was all the way to the right, you could get a nice, clean budgetary system. James Q. Wilson, who's a nice right-wing political scientist, has James Q. Wilson's first and second laws of program evaluation. Never evaluate any program in Minnesota because it always works. <laughs> never evaluate any program in New York because it never works. Okay? So it's, it's not a question of the techniques. It's really a question of the political basis and the willingness of people to compromise. You have a first-class civil service system in this state. You have good databases in this state. It's not that there's something evil out there, although a number of you think there are, but what you really disagree with are the policies, not the techniques of government. Because California actually has pretty good techniques of government. Okay, I think this is probably an appropriate time. That was a, a, a good response to an important question. Uh, I hope the panelists might be able to stay for a few moments. Sure. If anyone wants to come down and ask your question directly, the dialogue continue. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.